Welcome to episode number 67 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast, where we're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney, and in today's episode, we're talking about passive explosion mitigation through deflagration venting. To do that, we have on the call Jason Kerbeck, from Engineering Manager from CV Technology based at Jupiter, Florida. Jason, I want to say a big thank you for coming on the Dust Safety Science Podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the pod and, and a big fan of the work you guys are doing at Dust Safety Science. So keep it up. I really appreciate it. Jason has over 10 years of experience with CV technology, working in dust explosion protection, prevention. He's a member of the American Society of Safety Engineers. He's a member of the NFPA technical committees, including 652, the Fundamentals on Combustible Dust. And CV's been around for a long time. They they know their stuff, especially when it comes to explosion venting and anything really around explosion protection. I first met the team back in 2018 at the International Powder Show in Chicago. Um, they were founding members of the, the company supporting dust safety science. Since then, I've gotten to, to know Martin and Jason and Jay and the team there quite a bit over the last number of years. And they're, they're really a switched on group in this space. So I'm excited to have uh, a Jason here today talk to him and also excited to have Jason presenting at the 2020 Digital Dust Safety Conference on traditional and non-traditional explosion venting options. And I'm not sure we may even have changed that title since then, but that's what I have here in my, my notes, so we'll go with that. This podcast is really meant to give a more general discussion. What does Jason see as the current status, if you will, of explosion venting? I'm just going to go through some of the high-level concepts, um, and then where is it going over time? And then the presentation at uh, DDSC is really going to cover specific applications and approaches, obviously demonstrate the ideas and concepts visually better than we can here on the podcast. Otherwise, you would be crashing your car as you're listening to us, which we would encourage you not to. So definitely tune into that as well. But today, we're going to be going through more of a high-level level overview of deflagration venting. So Jason, maybe before we get into the, the questions, what is your, your role at CB Technology and ro- your role in industries handling combustible dust today? Sure. Thanks, Chris. So uh, my role at CV is, uh, you know, I basically operate as a as our engineering manager and helping our our sales engineers and also our application engineers and working on their designs and solutions for our customer base as they pull together explosion mitigation solutions and prevention solutions. And our company, you know, specializes in explosion venting, suppression systems, uh, explosion isolation valves, and and also spark detection. Recently, so that's another avenue on the prevention side that we're getting into. Excellent. So yeah, that's a a wide range of explosion prevention and protection options, which is great to see, especially with the expertise and knowledge that your your team has there. Today, we're going to be talking about explosion venting and deflagration venting. I guess just, you know, might as well start at the start. What is the, what's the principle behind explosion venting? What's, uh, you know, what's the thought process there? Sure, Chris. And, uh, you know, I always like to start the conversation with explosion venting by, you know, kind of painting the picture. Everyone probably you've seen a video on the internet or maybe a photo of a big flame ball coming out of a vessel, right? That's what explosion deflagration venting is. And uh, it's a passive mitigation solution. And the goal of uh, venting is really to prevent the deflagration, isn't really necessarily to prevent the deflagration from happening, but we're trying to mitigate the effects of the deflagration as it happens. So you kind of hear the terms deflagration venting. That's the proper term we should be using, right? But the slang term kind of is explosion venting, right? And that's the more commonplace one you'll see in, in trade names and things like that. And that's, you know, we're guilty of it just like everyone else. We call our products explosion vents. And when you say that, you know, the goal of these vents is really 
to prevent the explosion from happening, but not to prevent the deflagration from happening, right? The deflagration is the combustion event happening inside the volume, the building, and the venting is the act we're trying to do to relieve the pressure, exhaust the event out an opening so that we don't have an explosion event or an event actually occur. So that's the basic principles of explosion venting. The concept is we're putting some type of device in that's going to open for a relief area during the pressure rise associated with the deflagration, and the ultimate goal is to reduce the pressure to a manageable level. And that manageable level often is a term that hopefully many of the listeners have heard of. If not, I'm sure you or I can elaborate on it here, but that's the goal is uh, PRED or a maximum reduced pressure. Yeah, so I'll, I'll summarize some of the, the key points there. And you made, it's, it's funny because my background is in um, the world of combustion science and, and actually started in high explosives, which deflagration versus detonation, its co-partner, actually have a slightly different definition. So when I came to the space, I thought everyone was wrong when they were saying deflagration and explosion as well, but it's actually a little, even a little bit different. We called solid burning deflagration if it was, if it was slow, like a, like a sawdust pile would be a deflagration, but uh, on the ground. But anyway, that's not really that important. But the summary is today in, in explosion prevention, we're really talking about the fireball being the deflagration. That's the reaction front moving through the cloud of dust, the cloud of unreactive medium. And if that's confined totally or even partially, it will lead to an explosion, a buildup of pressure, and the explosion would be then the rupture of the thing containing the fireball. The goal of venting then is to vent to that to reduce the pressure, vent that deflagration, reduce the pressure, so you don't have an actual explosion. Um, so we say explosion vents, they're maybe more like explosion prevention vents, but that probably doesn't have as good of a marketing angle on them. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound as good, does it? <laughs> but uh, it's great, it's a good point, because I think there's probably buyers out there and there's operators and facility managers that hear the two terms and may start, uh, it may kind of mix them up if you, you hear that. So it's a good overview, and then the point is, yeah, to vent the deflagration in a designed way. We've all seen the videos with the fireballs. Generally, those are not designed right, <laughs> so you want to vent in a safe way. That gets a reduced below the, the P-RED, the reduced pressure, and uh, I'm sure we'll get into this, but also ejects that fireball in a place that's safe, um, or there are other technology options there. So those are really the, the principles around explosion venting. What are some advantages of explosion venting compared to some other mitigation techniques? Sure. So, you know, explosion venting is a passive type of mitigation technology. So there's kind of passive technologies and there's active technologies. Active technologies are ones that are typically using some type of sensor to timely detect the, the pressure rise associated with the deflagration and then some type of reaction item. Chemical suppression is a common one. You know, we've talked about on some of your, your past pods, right? And so that's one where you have a pressure detector in place. It's got to pick up the deflagration as it's developing activate some type of suppression bottle, inject that bottle into the process. Passive solutions, one that's a little bit more readily available and one that's you know going to almost act like a dumb type of device. It doesn't really have the ability to uh, detect what is an explosion, what isn't an explosion. It just opens up when it's going to. So explosion vents are like that. They're designed to open at a preset pressure. And once that pressure is exceeded, they open, whether it's for a deflagration event, an explosion event, or a process reason, right? If your process gets pressure too high and it may open your explosion vent falsely. And I say falsely, and that the goal is we're trying to vent, vent deflagrations and the explosions not open it because your process got an elevated pressure. So 
That's kind of the big advantage of passive solutions. They're always readily available. There's not a lot of failure modes for an explosion event. And an explosion event does typically fail in the safe mode, right? If something does go wrong, it's going to open up. If it's open up, you're venting at that point. And so that's the big advantage for it. And bigger picture-wise, this kind of plays into a trend we're seeing a lot in in process safety as a whole, and that has to do with, you know, reliability ratings of your safety solutions. And, uh, you know, I think on one of your, on your past pods, you can even chime in on which one if you remember, but the concept of safety instrumented systems and safety integrity levels is a hot topic right now that's coming up and, and working its way into the explosion protection side. And it already exists in many other areas of process safety, right? And so, as we go through this, there's even requirements in the new NFPA 69 that covers some of these prevention systems that, you know, starting in, in November 5th, 2021, if you have a, a prevention system you're putting in place, you have to treat it like it's a, a SIS or a safety instrumented system. And so as you go through a process and you start to look at, I got to determine how the level of safety I need to protect this vessel or this area in my plant. You know, with a prevention system that's instrumented, that can be kind of easy, right? You know, you have reliability, fault modes, you can come up with controllers and detectors. And with venting, that's not as straightforward and clear, but venting very well might be part of your solution, right? And so that's where uh, the passive technology really, really comes into play, that it's readily available and fail safe. You can start to get an equivalency ratio from that venting design what it would be if we treated this like a safety instrumented system and you'll start to see that you're able to achieve very high safety integrity levels with solutions that involve venting right and so that's something that's a, a up-and-coming challenge in the future for process engineers is how do they contribute their explosion venting as part of a more holistic approach for an entire safety in a process yeah i really like that discussion and that that really is on the i'd say at least for combustible dust on the cutting edge of process safety um, the podcast episode that Jason mentioned was 28. Um, that was back with Timothy Hennix. Uh, recent changes to NFPA 69, where he was talking about the the SIS uh, integration and the SIL integration, safety integrity level and safety instrumented systems. If I got the the acronyms right, I think I did. Um, and so I want to I want to dig into that a bit because those are really technical terms, but there's like a there's a really simple way to look at it, right? So. Talk about engineered systems. Jason started off with you have passive systems and active systems. So a passive system is one that doesn't need a controller, doesn't need wiring from the controller to the system. It doesn't need um, redundant sensors. So it doesn't need these different characteristics that could all cause complications. If it fails safe, that's even better. That means it's you know it, it has even less chance of things going wrong. So that just by the nature means you're going to have without all the technical stuff that goes in the SIS and SIL and that, you're just going to have a more reliable system. There's a quote by Trevor Kletz, says, what, what you don't have can't leak, and it's been propagated into what you, what you don't have can't explode. So if you don't have it, that's like SIL level the highest. I don't know what the highest would be, but <laughs> if you don't have it, then it can't fail. It fails safe every time. There's no So pass is more likely to have a better um, SIS level and SIL level just by kind of that nature. The hard part is probably how do we measure that? How do we quantify it? How do we compare it to other engineering solutions? 
And I think that's kind of where, where Jason's going. And and I don't know, the answers probably aren't there. Are they documented that kind of level yet? Or is that sort of things that might be coming down the pipe for passive and active safety precautions? Yeah. So for, for active solutions, it's, you know, still, still numbers are pretty much calculated and tested, right? But for passive solutions like venting, it's, it's not really done. And, um, you know, any numbers that we have are basically going to be assumed engineered equivalency numbers based on assumptions of failure rates for, for components. And the nice thing about explosion vents being passive and the way they're designed is the failure rate for a modern explosion vent right now is, is very, very low when it comes to the safety sense of it, right? So, you know, there's an equivalency you can do using using some math and some assumptions, but, you know, there's no clear-cut process on it. You take something that's mechanical, non, non-instrumented device, and you carry that over uh, in a clean way with something like an explosion vent. There's some some work people do with things like pressure relief discs on, on pressure vessels, right? And that's that's going to be where that is kind of synergistic because a pressure relief disc and a pressure and an explosion vent really aren't that different. You know, the goal is ultimately the same. Where just you know, an explosion vent is going to be much larger in size to relieve pressure of the explosion and deflagration. So that's where the equivalency will come into place, and some of those pressure relief calculations will carry over to the venting design and get you a solution. Yeah, and if we have any, um, and I know we do, researchers or academics or masters or PhD students that are looking for topics, um, this one's coming down the, the pipe. So this would be a good uh, a good research topic in the upcoming years, SIL and SIS levels on on combustible dust safety equipment. I think uh, you'd be able to get some industry feedback and, and involvement in that. So definitely definitely look into that. You can email me at chris at dustsafetyscience.com or um, we'll have Jason's contact information in the, the show notes at uh, dustsafetyscience.com slash 67. I'm, I'm sure either one of us can send you through some more information on that. So I like this whole concept. I like the idea of a passive solution being inherently safer than a active solution. There are some things you need to kind of consider, I guess. And I just wanted to run the list maybe for you because I know a, a couple. So if you have a horizontal vent, you can't we're up here in Canada right now and we're getting dumped on. So you, you can't let snow build up on top of the vent. It's not going to work right. You can't put bars over the vent. You probably don't really want to paint over it. You know, can you just run the list of things that people shouldn't be doing when they have a, a vent put in place that's, uh, that you've seen your experience? Sure. Absolutely. So, and explosion vents come in a lot of different forms too. So, you know, something we haven't really touched on is something even like an explosion door, which is something that's hinged and reclosable. Those exist in the marketplace and there's some design criteria in NFPA 68 for doing explosion doors. Membrane style vents also exist. So, you know, if you came out to our test library at TV technology, you'd see a bunch of things that look like aluminum foil on the test vessels. That's a membrane style that basically has no inertia. We use it in a test environment to save cost, right? So we don't have to use preformed vents for that. But the more common venting device right now is a, a preform engineered explosion vent. And that's one that's that's made on a press. It's usually has some laser etch scoring for getting the rupture sensor lines to be very, very precise and getting the exact tolerances in place in the venting exists. And so when you do something that's that engineered, right, like you said, adding things to it is usually a big no-no, right? So there are things you can do and get from manufacturers like us if you need like you said, you're up in, in Canada. I'm sorry you're getting dumped on. I don't even want to tell you what it's like here down in Florida where I'm based right now. I imagine it's terrible, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're sunny, sunny and warm right now. But, uh, 
you know, when you have vents that are outdoors and you get temperature differentials from processes, insulation is something that's really important, right? Especially when we talk about venting you put on in the food industry, that condensation that can form on the inside of the venting is is a definite no-no in some of those process areas. Uh, and even the chemical industry where you don't want moisture for reaction reasons, right? And so insulation is something you can get from vent manufacturers. And when you do that, then you have to account for that additional amount of inertia that's put on the vent. So anytime you put anything in an explosion, whether it's insulation on the outside or even product buildup on the process side of the vent, that adds inertia to the vent and it starts to open slower. When it opens slower, the dynamics of your venting calculation change, right? And so that inertia is a key part of when you're designing explosion vents that you have to account for. So I'd caution anyone, do not add anything to your explosion vents after the fact. Go to whoever who sold you the explosion vent and tell them this is what I need and they'll get you the right solution. Now, there are some other things you can do with explosion vents, and you touched on this a little bit earlier. You know, when you have an explosion vent open and, and, and we talked about, you know, some of these videos and photos, you see the big flame ball coming out. Well, you have a big flame ball coming out that has to go to a safe area, right? And so vents can be ducted. You can put ductwork on explosion vents and extend them out uh, if you have an internal vessel to an exterior area or even an exterior area and extending it past uh, a safe zone, perhaps. And so when you do that, you have to account for that design in the venting as well. And one of the big things, you know, bars in front of it, one you can't have. But, you know, people need to add things like bird screens or critter screens in front of the ductwork so you don't have, you know, a nest of that's of, uh, you know, some type of endangered bird settling in right where your explosion vent is um, or something maybe that's even more invasive. Or maybe even people screens like fences. <laughs> <laughs> or people too, yeah, in some cases, right? So uh, bird screen designs are some really good guidance and, and, and some of the FM Global Loss History Prevention Data Sheets and some uh, research they've done on, on screening uh, and exactly how much mesh you can have before it starts to affect the vent area on the end of ductwork. So there are resources out there outside of NFPA as well where you can get some of this information uh, about designing your vents. But, you know, basically, when you're looking at a basic vent design, it's you bolt on the vent and you leave it. Anything else you're adding to it should have been accounted for in the front end with the engineers that design the venting. Yeah, and I think that conversation probably goes part and parcel with this whole reliability and discussion as well. And because you touched on a couple of things and and this is probably another podcast episode or something that you're probably going to, well, you already mentioned we're going to be covering applications at DDSC, but so you mentioned like a, a couple of very specific cases, you know, you can have hy- hygienic membranes put on for food or pharmaceuticals or chemical insulation, uh, auto reticulating or auto closing doors, you know, different op- uh, screens, filters, different options, depending on what the process is. And just talking about the NFPA standards as they're evolving, the reliability factor is is starting to see minimum thresholds. So the point here is you need somebody that's experienced to, to give you these extra add-ons. Well, you need somebody who's experienced to give you explosion vent and then somebody's experienced to give you these add-ons. You don't really want to be as putting on yourself and you you do want somebody with some experience putting on. You you know, you just don't really want to take somebody's word for it that they slapped this auto closing door on or, or something. That's, I, I just want to encourage people to to talk to the experts when they're doing this, and and I put uh, yourself and the rest of the team at CV in that category. So I'd, I would highly recommend, yeah, if you look at these more extensive solutions, they know get somebody that knows what they're they're actually talking about. And in this discussion, we had these third party approvals 
Is there anything worth talking about there for the audience? Kind of what what does that even mean? I guess in a, in the first place for getting your system approved by a third party vendor. Yeah, so that that really comes into play when you start to go past the explosion vent. You start to look at something like a flameless venting technology, even. And so, uh, third party approvals is really about testing to make sure that the device is designed for the purpose that it's designed for, right? And so. There are some uh, ATEX test standards that cover some of these explosion venting devices. Flameless venting is one of them. We haven't really touched on flameless venting yet, but flameless venting is the same basic concept as venting. You have your deflagration vent mounted on a piece of equipment, and now you have a flame arrestor attached to it. And that goal of that flame arrestor is to make sure that flame ball does not exhaust into an area that may be occupied by people or other process area equipment. And that's the basic concept of flameless vent. And flameless vents come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. They're typically using some type of stainless steel mesh cartridge that allows the gas to relieve. That's how you get your pressure relief still, but creates a turbulent path and it's a heat sink and absorption where that flame isn't able to come through and some of that temperature is dissipated. So third-party approvals are really going to come into play when you start adding devices like that to your venting. Right. And now you're going to have to look at things like the dust concentration that's been introduced and tested with that device. Is too much dust getting your flameless vent? Does it affect the efficiency? As you can imagine, you put a flame rusher on the back of an explosion vent, it doesn't relieve 100% anymore in most cases. Right. And so things like third party approvals for KST as well are really important. That KST and Pmax values of the dust, they can affect things like flameless vent operation. And so, uh, in most cases, you need to have a third-party approval to some type of test standard that would cover all these different criteria. And those criteria are outlined in NFPA 68 if you're in North America or in, or in the ATEC standards if you're, if you're elsewhere. And so uh, those third-party test approvals will cover that, that gambit of items that you need to have that device tested to. And, you know, with explosion venting, by itself, freeform vents, they don't necessarily have to go through a lot of third-party testing approval other than things like quality checks, right? We start to talk about reliability. That also carries into that big ISO conversation with the quality and performance of products, right? You know, does the burst pressure in the vacuum right now, your explosion vent, does it really pressure relief and hold up to the vacuum you say it does, right? And so that gets into an even uh, bigger conversation that kind of ties back into that safety and instrumented system conversation we're having with the reliability and you know, I you know a good example that pops into mind when we were I listened to one of your podcasts recently. I think you had Keith on from CST. You guys were talking a little bit about venting with silos and in a weak weld deck design where you design the deck to relieve at a certain pressure on the top of the silo. That's a that's one that doesn't require necessarily third party approval, but there's a lot of engineering, as Keith had mentioned, that goes into that design, right? And we you know you mentioned make sure you go to the experts, right? A common thing we see is Someone has that preformed deck on their silo and years go by and someone in that engineering department says, hey, I need a bigger dust collector. We're going to change some material in this silo. They add a bigger dust collector onto it. They start hard piping conveyors onto it, hard piping pneumatic conveying lines onto it. And all of a sudden, that original deck design does not open the way it should, right? And so those are all things that maybe aren't a third-party approval rate, but maybe you should tie into an MOC system if you're talking about explosion venting, which you often can be overlooked when I'm looking in process facilities, like do I have MOC for what was that design criteria for that explosion vent, right? We put that explosion vent in, we got it from 
from you know a great manufacturer, but you know now we decided to start putting sugar in this vessel instead of flour, right? And now our KST our MIEs are very different. So that's always a, a big conversation as part of that addition of third party approvals. Yeah, I appreciate the discussion. We didn't, I didn't really um, prep you for going down that that road, but I, so I'm going to summarize it in in maybe four sentences here. Um, the first thing you said is, does it do what it's designed to do? <laughs> so that's like question number one and is, you know, it can go down a third party approval track or just common sense. That's what we'd like when we put a system in. Does it do what it's designed to do? And the other questions are every time, question mark, you know, under different processing conditions, question mark. What about two, five and 10 years from now, question mark. And I think, you know, third party approvals and certification of systems and having experts come in, those will all as we as we grow as a community, we'll keep going towards those questions. That's what you really want. You can't slap something up, and you know it works two out of three times. So that's great. <laughs> you know it doesn't it doesn't work in the the frigid cold up in uh, northern Ontario. Oh, probably should have thought of that. So that's a bigger discussion. I'll I'll bring it back towards uh, the the explosion venting side. You mentioned some you mentioned sill and cysts, and you know making sure you have the proper systems that are going to do what they wanted what they're designed to do. Is there anything else going on in the future? Or looking forward or on the horizon for explosion venting that you think the the audience might be interested in? Yeah, I think one of the one of the big things that you're seeing some advances in the explosion venting side is you're seeing a, a big movement from a lot of the less engineered controlled designs to ones that are very, very precise. Tight tolerances is really, really important when designing vents. And you know, this gets into a conversation really about keeping your process up and running, right? If you're running a process and you put an explosion vent in, you know, it's a passive solution. You, you went for that passive solution because it's the, the safest solution, the most reliable solution you can get. You put it in, the, the goal is set it and forget it, right? Well, if you do that, you have to make sure that vent can hold up to that, those process conditions, right? You mentioned a really good point you know, in your last summary was for how long, right? So one of the things we'll, I'll be showing in the easy presentation during our conference is an explosion that's sitting in a process and seeing what happens when a pneumatic conveying vessel is pulsing its filters and what does the vent actually do. And you'll see it's it's waving, right? It's pulsing back and forth as the pressure goes from pressure to vacuum, as things are pulsing, forces start hitting it. Well, metal fatigues eventually, right? And so does your explosion vent you bought in, in week one have the same performance criteria as week 10? And since it's venting, since it's passive, since it fails safe, from a safety standpoint, you're okay, but from a processing standpoint, you might not be, right? You don't want to open your explosion vent when, you're, when you don't need to because it shuts you down, right? And so tying that bank back into some of the, the big, uh, big advances in technology, that higher cycling ratings for explosion venting, those tighter tolerances is something that everyone's really working and researching and trying to achieve because the more reliable the vent is, the better it is for the process, the less downtime, the more money the production facility makes, right? Another big advance is the sanitary designs, right? And this is a big advance for, for those of you in, in the, the food realm. You know, food safety is a big, big concern. And when you start putting process safety equipment in place, it needs to be able to meet those same sanitary requirements. And so uh, electro-polishing of the metal, cracking crevice-free venting designs, USDA-certified designs, those are all things that are that are creeping their way into more commonplace for venting and less becoming, you know, one-off custom designs and more commonplace for if I have a food process, that's what I'm using. So that, you know, my explosion vent's not the weak point, 
in food safety in my process, right? And so those are big advances you see on the venting side. And then, you know, uh, the technology we kind of touched on, flameless venting, that's where we start to see a lot of uh, even more advancements is in the flameless venting design. Yeah, and so we'll, let's jump into that. You kind of described the flameless vent. If I had to describe it, I'm sure some of the listeners have, have seen them in operation, seen pictures of them. If not, go to CB's website, and, and I'm sure they have uh, have some pictures of them there. But they'd be a vent with a sort of box cage around it, and they come in different shapes and sizes. The box cage then, these are not the technical terms, I'm making them up on the spot, but a box cage with a mesh around it so that when you have the explosion, it's vented through the the disc or the panel. And then the explosion has to go through the mesh. And that's actually designed such that it will quench the fireball, eject the dust, and eject some of the pressure. will eject all the pressure eventually, but how fast it comes out is part of the design criteria. But the key is to stop the fireball from propagating outside. So unfortunately, when you see demos of these things, they're a little ho-hum because you always do one with a, a big flame and then you stick on the flameless vent and then there's nothing. But that's kind of the point. So these flameless vents, where... You know what kind of processes can they be applied, and where do you see them being used in industry? Yeah, so flameless vents are are really really great great technology out there uh, because they allow you to have the same advantage of passive venting, but allow you to have in areas that would be normally occupied or areas where you wouldn't have a, a clear path to get a flame ball out of. And so they can go from anywhere from you know dust collection equipment, pneumatic conveying equipment, storage vessels mechanical conveying equipment like bucket elevators. Uh, there's lots of uh, specific designs for, for uh, flameless vents that fit certain architecture and bucket elevators and things like that, which have a kind of a slimmer profile. And so there's a wide variety of them in the marketplace that fit pretty much any application. Now, the challenge is, coming back to that third-party certification question is, is your flameless vent acceptable for the dust concentrations you'd see, the optimal concentrations that that dust can produce when it when it's combusted, the KST, the Pmax of, of that dust as well. Uh, those are all things that are, that are kind of limiting factors to the flameless venting technology. So it's just about making sure that you have the right one designed for the right process. The one kind of downside to flameless venting that you, that you don't really have to worry about is when you use them indoors or in occupied areas is you do have some off gas from combustion that now is entering a room or an occupied area potentially. So you have to pay attention to things like the, the carbon monoxide production of that combustion material. You know, some materials like certain plastics give off toxic gases when they combust, right? So maybe those aren't good applications for explosion venting or flameless venting if you're doing it indoors. That's maybe where you want to look at certain things suppression technology and things like that. So uh, they're not the, the Excalibur here, the one one sword that solves it all, right? But they are they have their place in industry and they're great for a lot of the applications. You know, especially when we talk to things like processes where you can't have that suppression material get into it because you lose a batch or you have contamination in the process. Blameless venting in food industries and especially chemical are very commonplace now uh, as a newer technology. Oh, that's great. And I appreciate the the other thoughts, right? Because you do hear about the the fireball quite a bit being protected. But yeah, you want to make sure you're not ejecting toxic gases or even um, asphyxiation, carbon monoxide gases into working areas. And, and again, that comes back to having somebody who knows the system, knows the processing operation, and knows how these things are going to behave and is actually testing them. That's why you guys have a, have a test center down there in, 
in Florida where you're not getting any snow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, getting somebody that knows what they're, they're talking about is important for these systems. I guess just to kind of close off the podcast interview then, what can people expect from the Digital Dust Safety Conference and your presentation there? You got any uh, highlights that you, uh, or uh, tidbits that you can, you can share now? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I really was hoping in the conference to get more into some of the specific applications and approaches. Uh, we'll get some unique technology uh, from a process side and how you can apply venting and flameless venting to those technologies. I think that's where there's a lot of benefit. We'll show you some, hopefully, some videos. You know, like you said, the flameless venting video can be a little disappointing, right? But I pulled together some really nice thermal imaging uh, videos from the test lab that show you kind of here's the here's the thermal effects of an explosion event compared to what's happening on a flameless vent, and that's where you can really see something visual, right? And understand, oh, the safety area is a lot shorter around this than a, than a, than a vent. But yeah, the uh, those are some of the highlights we'll have in the presentation, um, and so we hope everyone here you know, uh, listening to the pod can join us. Yeah, definitely, and I appreciate you coming on today and, and taking the time to share share your knowledge with the community and just talk through all these different aspects of what's happened in the past, what's going on today, and what we're going to be seeing down the tracks in the future with uh, deflagration venting and, and with passive explosion protection overall. So thanks for coming on. And I think we, we had a couple other topics that came up, so I feel like we'll probably have you on the podcast again in the future. Yeah, appreciate it. Try, try to stay warm up there, man. Get a hat or something, okay? Jacket. Big down coat. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Jason Kerbeck. We've been talking about passive explosion mitigation through deflagration venting. We really covered the whole gambit of, of topics around this. We, we talked about what is the, you know, the design goal of a, of a venting system. It's really the fireball. If it's inside of a confined area, it's going to lead to pressurize, and that pressurize is going to lead to destructive forces. So the whole concept around the, the math and the process behind venting is to vent that fireball so that the pressure doesn't rise enough to destroy the equipment. And then with the the one caveat that you want to do that in a safe manner so you're not creating a new hazard by doing that venting. So we talked through the advantages of explosion venting, um, one being a passive system versus an engineered system. And we really got into a kind of a deep discussion on SIL and SIS levels. So these are around the integrity and the reliability of your system. We talked about a bunch of different design features, and these are things that Jason will talk about more in his Digital Dust Safety Conference presentation. But things like hygienic membranes, insulation, um, auto-closing or auto-reticulating doors, um, different design features. How do you go about getting a vent that's going to function properly, not just for your explosion conditions, but for your process operation? We talk about where things are going for venting. Talk about things like, again, reliability and integrity, but also precision, durability, and lifetime of the, the vents and the products. Are they going to function correctly in two years from now, five, ten years from now? How many cycles of operation can they go through before you know, failing due to explosion improperly or even failing due to process conditions. Uh, we talked about things like sanitary design as well. So Jason will be covering a lot of that in the Digital Less Safety Conference as well. And we closed up around the topic of flameless venting. How does it work? Where can it be used? Um, where's Jason seeing it being used today? And yeah, it was a really inspiring kind of discussion for me. I, I learned quite a bit around all these systems and where the industry is going. I hope you did as well. So if you're, you're interested in connecting with Jason, we'll have his contact information and links to the CV technology website at dustsafetyscience.com slash 67. So you can connect with him there. You can also connect with him inside the Dust Safety Academy for the Digital Dust Safety Conference. And the biggest feedback, we did a pre-event questionnaire before the conference, 
And the biggest feedback was around people wanting practical solutions. Practical is actually the most commonly used word in the 133 responses. Practical solutions, people want to know what to do first. They want to know, you know what the cost is going to be for specific applications. And they really want to know, yeah, what is the next step for them um, in their specific application? This is things that Jason's going to be covering at the conference. So I hope you'll, uh, you'll be interested enough to, to tune in and catch them there. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I really appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust around the world. I hope you have a safe and productive week coming ahead, and I look forward to bringing you the next edition of the podcast next week. Thank you.